Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 13th. We begin with a look at the Liberal government's stop to the investigation into sexual misconduct within the Canadian military. We get the latest from Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, who broke the original story months ago. Next, we look at the Muslim religious holiday of Ramadan, which kicks off this week. We learn about the origins and traditions surrounding the holy period of fasting and how this year's virtual edition will look. Next, we hear the gripping personal story of one Calgary mother's experience raising her special needs son. We speak with author Ashley Bristow about her new book, In My Own Blood. And finally, could laziness promote happiness? Happiness researcher Dr. Jillian Mandich thinks so. Dr. Mandich gives us some advice on how to do less to invite more happiness into our lives. A lot of questions still about the government's handling of sexual misconduct allegations in the Canadian military. But despite that, the government announcing yesterday an end to the probe. To talk about what this means, we're joined this morning by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, You broke this story to begin with. So what was your reaction yesterday when you heard the investigation had been shut down already? You know, um, not surprised. This, this is something we've seen happen on parliamentary committees before. Uh, we saw it with SNC-Lavalin. We saw it with WE. Um, we see the government allow sort of a certain amount of hearings and then make a decision to shut those hearings down. They actually don't have a majority uh, on the defense committee, unlike other committees where they've been able to use that. So the Bloc Québécois actually supported them in, in this decision in shutting it down. Uh, you know, as a reporter, I'm, I'm totally objective, regardless of breaking the story, but... Um, it certainly is is something we've seen before with this government and with other governments. Um, and it's interesting because there's been mixed reaction from victims. The group, it's just 700, which is a prominent uh, military sexual trauma victims advocacy group, was happy about it. They essentially said this has become a political circus. Nothing good is coming out of the committee anyhow. Just make the recommendations so the government can move. Other victims who I talked to, some of whom have come forward, said that they were disappointed that they felt they really hadn't heard from key witnesses yet, that they wanted someone to get to the bottom of this, and they feared that yet again this was going to be something just kind of swept under the rug and that the government is trying to wait out and have it go away rather than deal with it. Uh, And I definitely had uh, several phone calls from women in the military last night who felt that way. Mm. Mercedes Conservative and NDP members of the committee arguing that there's been no real responsibility and the probe should continue. It's fine to argue that. Is there a next step? Is there something that can be done to push this ahead and to reopen the investigation? It would be very difficult to do unless the bloc agreed. Um, that would really be the only way that they could do it. Uh, they can make motions. They can argue for it. Uh, they can try to get the Liberals to do it. They can open other committees. Um, for example, they could, this is what they were doing with SNC-Lavalin and we, they just move it to another committee. Uh, so it could go to the Ethics Committee, for example. Um, it, there is, by the way, a concurrent, not investigation, but hearings uh, at the Status of Women Committee that is looking into the culture in the Canadian Armed Forces. The government has also promised an independent probe keep in mind that is not the parliamentary hearings but we still have no details on what that's going to look like at all um and they've also promised that there's going to be some kind of a watchdog that will be independent uh, but we still have no details on that or whether they will um report directly to parliament which has been what most victims and many experts have said needs to happen
And no one has taken responsibility. No one has apologized. And from, you know, what we understand, even in our news this morning, the government saying, hey, we needed to get this wrapped up so everybody could get their reports in before, you know, they take a holiday break. Well, does that seem legitimate or is this, does it just feel like this is another one they're trying to sweep under the rug, you know, in hopes that we'll, we, we have short memories moving towards an election? Well, I think there's there's a question as to why all the witnesses would not have been heard from or why they couldn't start writing the report while still hearing from witnesses. Uh, it is true that summer break is coming up quickly, but nothing that's been said at committee has come as a surprise. These are common recommendations that have been made in multiple places, and they've been made in public. Uh, committees are an important place to, to do this kind of research, but if you have a report that is completed in time but incomplete in its contents, um, I think it raises a question there about if it has as much value as it could. You mentioned that you received emails uh, regarding this, you know, putting the brakes on the investigation from several women in the military. Um, this is something you've referenced over the past several weeks, and if not a couple of months here. Do you continue to get new uh, folks coming forward, new women coming forward with allegations? Every single day. Yeah, every single day. There's, there's women uh, and men, too. Um, it's not just an issue with women. Um, men have witnessed it, men have experienced it, women have witnessed it, women have experienced it. Many of them do not wish to go public. Many do not wish to get into details, but they want you to know that it's real. They want you to know that it's, it's happening. Um, and there's a sense that this is a watershed moment and they're very hopeful, but they're also very fearful that it will all kind of get lost uh, if if there's not a continued push for accountability and that things won't change for the next generation, which is over and over again uh, what I hear from, from these women and men, that they don't want their sons and daughters, if they choose to serve their country, um, to have to deal with this on top of the risk to their life and limb. Shocking. It really is. It's just amazing that, you know, testimony, it's all been shut down. And, and will we see a report? I think this is one of those issues where, again, Canadians really need to keep the government, you know, accountable on this one and, and make sure that we do get some sort of a resolution coming out of it. Thank you for all the work you've done on it and always joining in to give us the latest updates. Mercedes, appreciate it. Thanks, Sue and Andrew. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. 6.43 now and Muslims around the world are marking the beginning of the holy month of Ramadan. And this year, a lot of the celebrations are going virtual. Asif Arif is the imam of Baton Nur Mosque here in Calgary and joins us now. Good morning, Asif. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about this holy time? What exactly is Ramadan and how do Muslims celebrate this? So as Muslims who believe in the Messiah, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, we follow the teachings of the holy founder of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And uh, our very motto is love for all, hatred for none. And the month of Ramadan is very special for all Muslims all across the world. It marks the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And Muslims all across the globe will abstain from food and drink from pre-dawn to sunset. And fasting in the month of Ramadan is much more than just refraining from eating and drinking the whole day. Ramadan is the month of generosity, alms and charity, and prayer, reflection, and worship. And uh, during the pandemic, all of these things have become even more poignant. Asif, you you had a a chance to do a virtual Ramadan or a different version of Ramadan last year at the beginning of the pandemic. Any lessons learned or is it going to be very similar or is it improved because you've had one opportunity to do a a virtual observance of Ramadan last year? 
So in, in light of the in, uh, the pandemic, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat has launched a nat- national campaign to allow Canadians an opportunity to experience Ramadan virtually. Uh, this national campaign gives Canadians a chance to learn about Ramadan and participate with their fellow Muslims, uh, friends and neighbours. And so this year is no different uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, we are also having this campaign and uh, Calgary is no exception. The Calgary chapter of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat will also hold uh, their annual Ramadan program virtually on Tuesday, the 20th of April at 6.30 p.m. And this will be a free event for everyone, for the public. And the theme of this year's event will be a spirit of fasting, sacrificing personal privileges for larger benefits. Asif, can you tell us how large is our Muslim community here in, in Calgary? So in Calgary, the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community, I can only speak for the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, Jamaat, uh, we're uh, a little over 2,000. Okay. Just wondering, you know, is there an opportunity, if, you know, if I'm not Muslim, to, to learn more about Ramadan during this time, or is it just closed off to those folks that are observing and within the religion? Or is there an opportunity for a Calgarian outside the religion? This is an opportunity for all Canadians uh, from all walks of life, to join us uh, and and learn about uh, Ramadan and uh, what Muslims are, are, are about and the, the true teachings of Islam. It, it, you mentioned it earlier, the love for all, hatred for none. Is that is that something that Muslims try to live by daily? Is that sort of one of the, 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 the creeds that are so important to the religion? So the fundamental uh, principles of Islam are two. One is the worship of uh, God the Almighty, and second is to look after the needs of others, to fulfill the rights of others, not just yourself. And this lo- this love for all, hatred for none motto, coined by the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, uh, completely uh, epitomizes these two fundamental principles of Islam. Uh, that you're not just looking after your worship, but you also have to look after all those that are around you. And this pandemic has made this even more apparent where people need each other. We're, we we hear this every day, we are all in this together. Uh, and we have to really show that by way of our actions. And Islam teaches us that whoever is around you, uh, no matter who they may be, whatever religion uh, they may associate themselves with, or whatever ideology they may associate themselves with, the fact of the matter is that the common denominator the denominator is that we are all humans and we have to look after each other. And that's what Islam teaches. Asif, thank you so much for uh, your time this morning and uh, breaking it down for us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is Asif Arif, Imam of Bataan Nur Mosque here in Calgary. Details online at virtualramadan.ca. It's the gripping true story penned by Calgary-based author Ashley Bristow that will strike a chord for many parents. My Own Blood chronicles Bristow and her family's journey raising their special needs son. To tell us all about her memoir, we're joined now by author Ashley Bristow. Good morning to you, Ashley. Good morning. I loved how you said memoir. It's memoir. my memoir. Well, en français, you, you got to <laughs> spruce things up. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's awesome to have a story like this, as, as I mentioned in the intro, that so many parents will be able to relate to. So let's, let's uh, hear your story. And I guess it, it really does begin with the birth of your son. It does. It actually begins just before the birth of my son, because before our 
our younger child was born, my husband and I had all sorts of plans for the future that didn't include a disabled child and all that that would encompass. So we were on our way to Europe with our older child and this new baby to come. We had book projects in the, on the go for the fall. We had other projects spiraling out into the coming years. And everything came to a grinding halt when our son arrived. How long ago was that now, Ashley? So that was 2009. Our son was born in 2009 at the Rocky View Hospital. Tell us about Alexander and and, and how you knew right from the start, or, or did you, that, that he was special? No, we didn't, actually. I'd had an amniocentesis, and it had come back clear. So what Alexander has is a very rare chromosomal syndrome called Kleefstra syndrome. And when he was diagnosed in December 2009, he was the 72nd person diagnosed in the world. Wow. Incredible in the sense that, yes, super, super unique syndrome, but at the same time, I mean, how much did you know about, you know, anything that that could you know, go awry with a new baby? Was this a whole new world for you? It was. It was a completely new world. I mean, I was already a mother, and I thought I knew what I was doing, and I'd had lots of younger cousins, and I'd been a babysitter and sort of a youth leader as a child, so like, and a teen, so I knew what I was kind of doing. Mm-hmm. But then this child arrived, and he was silent and could almost not open his eyes and was floppy, and there were all of these concerns and a lot of mystery surrounding him. And when we went to the doctor, she'd say, oh, you know, I'm sure he'll catch up, and the nurses will be like, yeah, you know, um, bring him back when he's about three and we'll see again. And I gradually began to feel this sort of sense of, wait, no, I think that there's something more going on and I, nobody's telling me. Mm-hmm. And so that's when the ball really began rolling. And I began chopping down doors in order to try and find services for this child and help for our family. And, you know, your, your story, your book, My Own Blood, it kind of, that, that's the beauty of it. It really takes us on the journey with you and your family. It is. It's a journey. It's a really, it's a journey with the family, but it for sure is a journey of mine. This isn't the story of my son's progress. It's very much more a story of what happened to me. I wrote this book. I was really spurred by this sense of rage that my life had been taken away from me and replaced by something that I didn't recognize at all that and all of the advantage that advantages and skills that I'd had to that point in my life weren't serving me people weren't telling me the truth I was finding that no matter how Karen like and how many managers I asked to speak to I couldn't get straight answers I couldn't get real help and so what ended up happening, unfortunately, just because of a just because of a fluke, somebody I knew in Toronto had gone to a place in Philadelphia. We took our son there and got an incredibly intensive therapy program and we brought it home and ran it here in Calgary. Wow, in- interesting in that like how many other people were going through this simultaneously or obviously you know well before you, but there wasn't kind of a, a manual that is your memoir. Well, Exactly. Let me just say that although this is an impossibly rare syndrome and not everybody has special needs children, this book is a book for any parent. It's a book for anyone who works with children generally, anybody who works in the healthcare system, anybody who works in education. This is a book really at Canadian society 
and it's funny with a lot of swearing, but um, it's a, a look a look through my eyes at Canadian society, the ableist barriers that serve to isolate families, particularly with special needs children, because we don't have a, a real conversation happening. We are at some point of we reached empathy fatigue for disabled children long, long, long ago, way before the pandemic. And now we are all in lockdown experiencing a taste of the isolation that happens to most families who have high needs children. Ashley, I know you're going to be sharing your story at WordFest coming up. You know, are you, do you hear from parents who, who, you know, kind of have, have gone on this journey with you and realize that they may have some similarities in their world? The book speaks aloud a lot of the things that we don't talk about in society. I talk about the fact that I had an amnio and what choices I would have made had the results not come back clear. I talked about how everybody wants, like when people say, oh, do you want a girl or a boy? Do you have a preference? And everybody, what do people say? I just want a healthy baby. I just want a healthy baby. But what happens if it's not a healthy baby? Do you still want it? I mean, that's hard. Those are hard. Those are hard things to talk about. And I was, I, I, I felt an obligation to voice those worries, concerns, anxieties, dreads, those horrifying nightmare fantasies that we all experience as people in the world. Incredible. Very powerful. And uh, people can hear your words and hear more about it at wordfest.com. That's where you go to register uh, for your presentation on the 20th of this month. Thank you so much for your time, Ashley. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Good stuff. That's uh, author Ashley Bristow, author of My Own Blood. Great sense of humor on her and just, a, I think, a really important topic and, and good for her for putting it all out there because I'm sure she'll she, you know, take some criticism yeah. for, for writing a book like this, but it's real life and there are a whole lot of people who experience it and every parent understands that feeling of, you know, you're, you're wondering, you're just always hoping that your baby is going to be okay. I mean, we love them no matter what, doesn't matter how they come out, but before they're born, you're always hoping, you know, everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And you can do test after test. And you never know. You never know. You never know. And what's interesting is I'm going to date myself here, but if you were just listening to that interview and heard Ashley Bristow's voice, it's not like I know her, but I think a lot of people there know of her, and I certainly know of her. Ashley Bristow was one of the stars of the series, TV series that ran between 1980 and 1986 called Harriet's Magic Hats. It was a children's show, how the child could be transformed, I think it was by her aunt's hat collection. They had various child stars throughout. She was one of the final ones. So it was a real life, kind of? It was... Yeah, yeah. Not a cartoon. Not a cartoon. And it was on Access Television. It was called Harriet's Magic Hats. Googling it right now. And Ashley Bristow was one of the stars of that. Oh. And I was kind of shocked when we set up this interview with Ashley, now the author, um, that she's a Calgarian. So it's incredible stuff and... uh, Again, that'll impact so many parents out there. Uh, Do uh, pick up the book if you have a chance. You know, it's called In My Own Blood. 8.43 and things have definitely slowed down dramatically during the pandemic. But so many of us still have that voice in our head telling us there's always something that needs to be done. And don't be so lazy. But happiness researcher Dr. Jillian Mandich says we need to change the way we think about slowing down. And she joins us now. Good morning, Dr. Mandich. Thanks for being here. 
Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andy. It's great to join you. Okay, so ironically, just so you know, the laziest day of last year, based on Google searches, was April 13th of 2020. So this exact Mm -hmm. date last year. So it's like we were (laughs) meant to talk today. (laughs) That is so synchronistic. I love that. Me too. So okay, in honor of that, you say laziness can actually be a form of self-care. So tell us more, because I need to know. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes... The idea of laziness has a really negative connotation, um, and really, it shouldn't be confused with idleness, right? So, to be idle is to not do anything, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actively withholding or you're not doing something or you're procrastinating. You know, when we think about it in in the broadest sense of the word, it's about not doing. And in a culture that is often rewarded for productivity, for outcomes, for checking off your items on your to-do list, for submitting things, the idea of not doing can almost seem counterintuitive or not good when in actuality, uh, you know, the research is very clear that we need to rest. We can't be go, go, go all the time. Dr. Mandage, though, I mean, this is... This goes against the grain of our culture. How are we going to change this? Can it, can, can it be learned? Because I know that if I'm sitting around, there's 15 things that I should be doing. And how, you're being how, told about it, and too. And I've got lists from everybody in my family yeah. and Sue. Uh, so the whole point is, uh, can we acquire those skills to not? Yes, we absolutely can. And it's not easy. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of, when we look at like the science of habit formation, for example, Sometimes we, we actually actively work on a habit, like we want to go to the gym, for example, exercise. We actually have to put in work to build that habit. Some other habits are often more unconscious or subtle, or they formed over a long period of time that we don't even really have to give a lot of cognitive effort for them to happen. And so uh, for us, a lot of us, this idea of do, 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 go, 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 having these lists is so deeply ingrained that if we want to start to change that habit, it actually takes a lot of work, especially at the beginning, because we're not used to it. Um, but choosing to rewrite that narrative and, and really reminding ourselves that the literature is clear, like, we need time to relax. If you look at, like, creativity, problem solving, those things tend to happen when we give our brain a break. And then it becomes even more difficult because it's hard to relax when our phones are bing-bonging all the time and there's a million notifications, right? It just adds to sort of the mud of the situation. You have referred to it a couple of times. So there is research that shows, you know, by sort of allowing ourselves to just to just be can lead to better physical and mental health? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, when you talk to them, they'll, they'll tell, or when I talk to them, will tell me, I have my best ideas in the shower. And I thought, why is that? And then there's actually research on that. And in the shower, we have no devices. We have no, like we have that time when we can't do anything other than shower. And so this is a great example of sometimes we need that opportunity to give our brains a break. And I think especially with, you know, the pandemic now being over a year and people are feeling really burnt out, they're feeling tired. One even more, it's, it's such an important piece because you can't just go, 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 go all the time without feeling these, these burnout and low energy and sluggish. And so this is a lot of people are experiencing that because we aren't giving ourselves the opportunity to slow down and to take a break. It's on my to-do list this afternoon. <laughs> I can yeah. tell you, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. And uh, <laughs> it's something I've got to work on. Thanks, Jillian. And make a to-don't list. Oh, yeah. A to-don't <laughs> I like that. Wow. To don't list. Done. I'll have to train the rest of my family as well. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Jillian Mandich, a happiness research, and you can find her online at jillianmandich.com, and that's Jillian with a G and M-A-N-D-I-C-H.